Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we are fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. My name is Caitlin, and if I were in a Sabak tournament, I'm very interested to know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, when the stakes get high, I would bet... Uh, I said in the practice that I would bet all four of my children because hopefully somebody would win and take them. <laughs> but uh, I probably wouldn't really do that because I do like them. Uh, so I have to think of something else. Like maybe I would bet my beautiful new book cover because I wouldn't want to give that up. I'm Kristen, and in a Sabak tournament, I'd bet my laptop because it contains all my writing, so it's a value, but it also contains my ability to work. So if it loses, if I lose, I still win because I no longer have to work. See, the real question here is, would anybody take up these bets? Like, would anybody <laughs> want the thing that we're offering? Yeah, okay, but the laptop contains, like, a treasure trove of, of unpublished work, you know? I, I would want that. <laughs> I would. Yeah, probably nobody wants my laptop. It's pretty old. <laughs> I'm Cameron, and I would wager a Sith holocron. Just don't ask me where I got it. <laughs> but that's part of what I'd want to... Well, go ahead. <laughs> That's, I mean, that's a fair question, though. I feel like you have to have a clear chain of title with that kind of thing. We can talk about it after the game. <laughs> there we go. I'm Margaret Owen. I have no idea what a Sabacc tournament is, but I think I'm guessing from context clues that it's from Star Wars. I actually don't know either. <laughs> it Star is Wars. from Star yes. Wars. I think I would wager my next book because then Ooh. if I lose, I don't have to write it. <laughs> there we go. But that means whoever wins has to write it. Uh-huh. When the curse has passed to them. That's how it works. It's like the awesome. ring, right? Okay, well, a uh, big welcome to Margaret Owen, the author of The Merciful Crow, The Faithless Hawk, and forthcoming Little Thieves. Tell us about your upcoming book, Margaret. Why, thank you. I shall. Uh, it is a very loose retelling of The Goose Girl, which is an old school uh, Grimm's fairy tale. And it is you can look up the goose girl if you want it's a fun interesting fairy tale doesn't get touched on too much but the premise of the book itself is that it's about a girl who used to be a servant stole her boss slash former best friend's entire life slash identity and has been using it for the last year to basically get access to high society parties and use that as a cover to steal a whole lot of jewelry for reasons that are her own. On the night of her hopeful, like, second to last heist, she winds up crossing the wrong family and their patron god and cursed to slowly turn into jewels herself unless she can make up for everything that she's stolen. And that includes the identity of her best friend. And so there's her dealing with that and also dealing with <laughs> the fiancé of the princess <laughs> whose, whose identity she's stolen, who now wants to get married in two weeks and who she hates very much, and the detective who is now on her trail assigned <laughs> to catch the jewel thief, and the half-god daughter of the deity who cursed her in the first place. So there's a lot going on. If, if a fairy tale was directed... By James Gunn, I'd say, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> or you know, like a fairy. Like that—that that, that sounds like Shrek almost. So I'd say it's—it's <laughs> it's closer to like a fairy tale meets Ocean's Eight ish. There's a lot of scamming involved, a lot of personal growth for everybody involved, and a whole lot of fairy tale nonsense. <laughs> I really loved this book. It is so fun. And I love the way you described it because I feel like so many authors feel like they need to come up with a one-sentence elevator pitch, and some books just don't fit into one sentence. That's a very nice way of saying that I answered it very longly, but I appreciate no, no. that. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I like those big twisty books that have a lot more to them than that elevator pitch, you know, mm-hmm. because there's some books where you know exactly what you're getting because it says it on the back cover. Mm-hmm. And then there are other books where you're like, this is a tiny smidgen that maybe describes the first <laughs> sentence of the book. Mm-hmm. And there's so much more. And I love that. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I think the the one sentence version is it's a fairy tale if the the protagonist was the horrible goose from Untitled Goose Game. <laughs> Nice. Thank you. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, what we're talking about today is stakes, because after I read Margaret's book, I felt like she did a wonderful job of producing all sorts of different kinds of stakes on all sorts of levels. And I would like to pick her brain about how she did that and made it work so well. So uh, maybe you could tell us what are stakes in the story, just for those of us who are new writers. Yeah, totally. Stakes are basically what's up for grabs. What's what it, When you say what is at stake, that is <laughs> that is it. Is a, both what the protagonist has to gain and what they have to lose. They tend to come in like sort of personal stakes and existential stakes. So for personal stakes, it's like, will I forgive my brother in time for the wedding? Oh, and, and like, <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's kind of like personal stuff. Um, it's the Jane Austen version. Exactly. Like, <laughs> my sister has embarrassed our family once again. But actually, that's a really, that's a really good example, though, of both personal stakes and existential stakes, because the existential stakes are things that sort of impact your real day-to-day life on a not emotional level. And the whole point with Pride and Prejudice in particular is that, you know, okay, yes, her sister has run off with, with a scoundrel and that's bad for the family, but it's like, well, yes, that's bad for the family and that daughter's all the way down and now none of them are going to get married <laughs> like, and their financial future is at stake. Existential stakes tend to be, you know, like your income, your well-being, your your health is kind of tends to be like both personal and existential. Yeah, basically stuff that you have to lose is stakes in a nutshell. I have to say that slowly turning into jewelry is stakes that I've not heard before. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, I had a lot of fun with that because I wanted to do a curse that felt kind of, you know, fairy tale nonsensy. And a lot of the time, you know, in fairy tales, the good child of a, of a fairy tale is rewarded by having some kind of blessing like, oh, well, you know, she just wakes up with a giant pile of jewels with her every morning or she, st- she talks and jewels fall out of her mouth. And I remember were thinking you know as i was reading that like okay but what about like when she needs to eat like (laughs) or or sleep like if you wake up with a pile of jewels every morning and you just roll over like do you get like a diamond just like right in the face or what the jewel curse was you know sort of this also this way of me sort of sneaking into this idea like you know jewels and jewels are valuable they're you know we have a lot of like ooh, glamorous cool stuff uh, attached to them but not necessarily always a good thing so there's a reason that the the curse is jewels well i i was just gonna say that when i think of stakes i always think of anything that's at risk in a potential consequence is probably the way that i would sum it up so i loved what you said margaret thank you i always say what does your character want and what happens to them if they don't get it yes there's my elevator pitch version Mm -hmm. but as always i mean your description is much more it's much more detailed and helpful. <laughs> so I guess the question then is when when do you start revealing those stakes to readers? Is that something that necessarily has to come right away? Is can some stakes wait till later in a book? What's what's with pacing and stakes? A successful book is gonna have both personal and existential stakes. And the existential stakes tend to get introduced first. Those are the things that you can really talk about and pitch at a high level. Like, you know, if you don't do this, you know, the, the, the queen will die or something like that. And 
the emotional stakes tend to come later to be like, all right, well, this is why we actually care about the queen dying. Because otherwise, I mean, queens die every day. Sorry. Sorry, Queen Mother Elizabeth, but it's <laughs> it's true. It's it's a it's a just a countdown now. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, like the, you know, the the reality with books, um, the tricky thing, or with stakes particularly, the tricky thing is making sure that your existential stakes still have enough weight and intrigue to carry the plot until you get to the emotional stakes where it's like gut punch of, oh, that's why we care. And I think, you know, you can kind of work some of those into those or hint, you know, drop hints like, all right, well, I have to win this race um, for the sake of my family. If you haven't been introduced to the family, then nobody cares that their family's at stake. But if you're like, if I have to win this race for the sake of my family, my my little sister's just trying to go off to art college, then I guarantee all the artists who are reading the book are like, oh, no, not the art college, sister. <laughs> So what do you think? I'm going to get very uh, specific about the, like even like the first page of a book. So what would mm-hmm. you think about the importance of, as I was thinking about as we're having this conversation, yeah. I feel like it's a really good idea to have stakes, like if not in the first sentence, in the first paragraph. Like they don't yeah. have to be the stakes that are like the main stakes of the book, mm-hmm. but there should be something right up front that says, here's why you should be paying attention to this moment in time. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that in context of the chapter that we'll be critiquing later, because that's one of the things that I was, one of my suggestions is to put some more emotional stakes into that first page. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into that later, but just on a, on a general level, I think there has to be something on the first page that makes the per- the, the reader who has no idea about this book, who's just picked it up off of a shelf, want to keep reading. And that can be a character they want to keep reading about. That can be prose that asks them a question. But stakes are going to be the easiest way to ask, them, ask that question or to establish or to basically give them a problem that they want to solve by reading on. And I think when it comes to the first page... You don't have to put all your cards on the table, but it's a lot more compelling to say, you know, I I have to take, as opposed to saying, you know, I've been on my own since I was a child and, uh, you know, I, <laughs> or, and I have to win this Yu-Gi-Oh fight <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to pay for my house. It, it becomes more compelling to be like, I've been on my own as a child and if I win this tournament, I get to meet my parents for the first time. If you establish something like that on the on the first page, you have basically you don't have to establish why your parents aren't there, what the tournament is, anything about that. You've already raised this question that is that does hit an emotional level um, of well, why have these parents abandoned this kid, and why does this kid want to go find them? These are things that are pretty relatable. Uh, just just on the on the most basic level because everybody has parents whether they have a good relationship with them or not so i think what you're uh bringing up here is a valuable <laughs> point which is that personal stakes need to be relatable yes. right they need to be something that gut punches because the person who's reading is like oh how would that feel for me mm-hmm. and so that's why the exit the existential stakes don't feel as close because i've never tried to stop someone from killing the queen <laughs> right my sister did not run away with somebody and ruin our whole family that happened um, to me all the time all the time <laughs> and sometimes she even ran off to try to kill the queen it was just really awkward for a while it's relentless <laughs> exactly <laughs> just not a fan of the monarchy around here i guess <laughs> so so i have to say as we're talking about this red rising is one of the big ones that jumps to my mind right because you have the huge existential plot of we have to overthrow the rulings oppressive Mm -hmm. government 
but the catalyst is a very personal emotional someone mm-hmm. close to me died and i want revenge mm-hmm. and ah oh, but that does not happen in the first page of that book again <laughs> well okay so 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 no, <laughs> no right so don't take this out of too much context <laughs> i love i love red rising it's one of my favorite ever too. books i hate the first third <laughs> Okay, so here's here's where I have to admit something very terrible, and that's why I haven't read Red Rising. However, oh. I know I'm familiar with the basic premise of it, and you know, or and the concept. <laughs> this is where we get into. I'm just going to call it meta stakes, even though I'm completely pulling that one out of thin air. They're probably like there's probably a better word for it, but the the premise is, in a nutshell, these people have been told that if they God, this sounds very relevant in modern times. If they labor away in this grueling, backbreaking work, that will guarantee, I believe, humanity's survival. Um, mm. And the the main character, after the death of his wife, discovers, or after his wife is killed uh, by the ruling class, discovers that, in fact, the ruling class is basically just having a party nonstop up up top and decides to take them down from inside and enrolls into an academy in order to do this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what the personal stakes there are, isn't about the loss of his family on the, on page one. It's, um, it's that he's doing backbreaking, thankless labor that is not appreciated, but, but is supposed to be valuable, but it's not, it's not something that, is so valuable that he that his life has meaning and i don't think there's a single person who's ever felt like they or who's never felt uh, that you know the work that they are doing is critical but thankless so more of the more what, what that's very relatable is the fact that he's being taken advantage of by people in power Exactly. Well, and I also wanted to highlight, actually, is that his stakes change really drastically in the first little bit of that book. Mm -hmm. He starts out just wanting to win a contest because he feels like that's what needs to happen. He wants to be the best. Mm -hmm. He is the best engineer, drill driver man ever. Hell driver. (laughs) How did you forget that? How dare you? I remember that. I haven't read this book in like five years. I don't know how I've retained so much of it. (laughs) I don't know. Well, that must mean it's a good book. But Mm -hmm. I feel like... The change in stakes is actually what makes them so personal because we they change, we get to right. change with him. And I think that that is something that we're not actually talking about right now. But I think <laughs> that your uh, your space to change things like that and your space to introduce things like that it changes based on what uh, age group you are writing to. Yes, and that is definitely an adult book. Yeah, so there's a little bit more space there. Right. The, with YA, you just have to kind of hit go start right out the gate. And be like, these are the stakes. And I feel like the stakes are allowed to evolve. But just from jump, they have to be something that's like deeply personal or deeply existential or existential. That's a new word. Uh, but, you know, it it has to be something that really grabs the attention of the reader no matter what, even if it changes further on down the line. Well, and I think that um, people will get on board with stakes in a first chapter that are like, we're going to steal this cool thing. Right. And, and that's. Enough, especially if they're like, and I'm doing it for a good reason. I'm just not going to share it with you yet. Mm-hmm. I, but like, I think that readers are able to get on board with stakes that are immediate and there, even if they are ex- existential stakes. Right. But then the personal stakes are what actually matters for a reader to like a book and identify with a book later. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yes. <laughs> so uh, a question I had is, how do you make stakes matter all the way through a book without it filling one note? Or how can you make it apply in more than one way? Or how can you make those existential stakes feel very personal? And you can answer any of those questions that I just asked. They're all very different. I feel like 
I always whenever I come back to a good character journey that or where the stakes evolve, I'm just going to I'm going to put on a very basic hat here and go back to um, Avatar the Last Airbender. And if you look at exactly where my brain went, right? <laughs> so it. if you look at like Aang's character arc, it's pretty universal. Like the, his job is to save the world by taking out the Fire Lord. And there's a little bit of evolution there with the stakes uh, where at the end it's like, well, no, you have to actually kill a man, Aang. And he's like, I would rather not. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's that, that sort of personal existential crisis, which I thought was, you know, pretty well done and an interesting thing to raise at the end of this big epic arc. But the better version of like, how do you make existential stakes personal and how do you evolve and how do you change stakes um, and keep people you know engaged is Zuko's arc we see him start off as like you know well I gotta catch the the avatar for my honor and uh my honor that episode at, towards the end the Amber Ireland players where they just mercilessly roast the entire show is so <laughs> good it's just perfection and it was just a smart way to do that necessary episode but that's a whole other tangent uh, but, <laughs> but um yeah with zuko's arc we see his his care you know his his personal stakes change as he grows as a character and like we see the stakes shift and his goals shift and what he wants shift in accordance with his growth and i think if you're if you're looking for how to keep people engaged over a long period of time with the same character, which you have to do with a book, because like unless you're you're juggling multiple POV characters, and that's a whole other thing with stakes, because then you have to have different sets of stakes that are very quickly communicated and impactful for each character. But um, yeah, with Zuko, you watch his journey change him, and then you watch his stakes change because of that journey, and say, you know him saying. First, you know, yes, I'm going to choose my uncle, you know, and this path. No, then I'm going to choose, you know, because of my horrible, tragic path with my abusive father, I'm going to choose this route and these things. And as a viewer, you are saying to yourself, like, you know, the stakes are, oh, he's got to get out of here before Azula murks him. Like, he's got to get out of there before he dies. And meanwhile, Zuko's like, I just want to be the best fire lord I can. And <laughs> like Azula's just like, cool. Well, uh, definitely going to put this poison away temporarily. Didn't see that. Uh, you know, like she's just clearly going to get rid of him. At, yeah. She would never use poison. What are you talking about? <laughs> she would just go straight for the that's heart. That's true. Or the throat, you know. <laughs> she's, she's a very direct <laughs> character. But yeah, like it's a very long answer. But uh, yeah. I think Zuko is the greatest example of someone's character arc shifting and their stakes changing in accordance with that and letting those two feed off of each other. I'm going to drag the answer out just a little more and say <laughs> the word that came to my mind was reframing. Yes. Right? Because his central stake stays his honor. It's right. just that he decides that he also wants the love of his father, but the love of his, but he finds out that in order to have what he thinks that is, he would have to actually abandon what honor he has. Right. And so the only honorable thing for him to do is to switch sides. Right. And um, I think, you know, the, the big thing is that him finding out, you know, seeing what he's been told honor is through military strength through his father and, you know, through violence and military strength. And then seeing his uncle, you know, with Uncle Iroh, uh, who actually does have significant military experience. I don't actually know if they get into Ozai's military experience, but like seeing his uncle being like, 
Yeah, I love tea. I love not being violent. Also, I've won like a million battles. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, the way that you you and your dad are going about it is all wrong. Seeing Ira lead by example, seeing what that kind of model of honor and strength looks like, you can see that impact him over the course of the show and the choices that he makes. Maybe, maybe put it another way. Iroh was the pinnacle example of what it meant to be a Fire Nation man. Exactly. <laughs> and then he walked away from it and became a man of peace. Exactly. I think something I... I feel like this all boils down to something that a really early on guest in our show, Mikkel George, said is you should be able to ask the question, what does your character want and what happens to them if they don't get it? But then what happens if they do get it? (laughs) And is that always a good thing? (laughs) Yes. And is it what they really thought? Which I feel like is what happens to Zuko. Anyway, Mm -hmm. we are kind of running out of time here. So I, I wanted to ask one last question, which is how can you continually raise stakes without jumping the shark? (laughs) without jumping the shark oh man i you know just going back to the zoku example not to drag it out too much but like you know you let the the natural consequences of either not getting or getting what you are what you want explode you find the worst possible answer for either of those questions and you just jump right into it and and go from there like um if you have a, a situation where it's like okay well my family is going to lose their house unless i win this contest then there's no there's no reason that you can't jump to like in the third act to oh no someone filed the paperwork wrong we're losing our house now and like now we've got to figure out how to handle that or the the opposite is all right well if i win this contest then my family gets to keep our house you win the contest in the third act and discover your family actually sucks and you don't want to stay there <laughs> Like, those those are, like, two different ways to sort of escalate that and be like, well, you got what you wanted or you didn't get what you needed. And what is the worst thing that can happen as a result of that? I feel like a lot of newer writers really struggle in this because instead of trying to make the stakes deeper, they make them more elaborate, or like, worse. They, they add yes. on top of. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've seen, like, somebody's really struggled to fight one monster in the first, second, third chapter. And then at the end, they're like, I'm killing 20 monsters. Look at all these monsters mm-hmm. like so it completely wipes out uh all of the tension that was at the beginning of the book right. because it obviously couldn't have been that hard right so yeah it's very, i think it could be done Cameron. well i think it could be done well miss miss born jumps to mind that literal thing happens <laughs> i think well I what about it. star wars where we're like we have a whole fleet of planet killers you know? <laughs> we don't talk about that series <laughs> no, so i said just because just because it can be done well does not mean it is always done well <laughs> I, it's definitely a case of like stakes creep, right? Or, you know, it's, and I think it comes from almost having a video game kind of model where you have these, you know, low level scrubs that you start off with at the very beginning. And it's like, well, you've got a, if it's Breath of the Wild, you've got a stick and you can hit these horrible low level things with a stick five times and it'll kill it. And then, you know, after you've been playing the game for long enough, you've got all these super cool weapons that, where you just breeze through the entire thing. And you're like, well, gosh, I, you know, <laughs> this this is a lot easier now. But that's a video game approach that works for video games. When you get into like the a book narrative, unless it's being used as like a sign of growth, then you know you do you do kind of take away the impact of those low level enemies and, and obstacles. And um, or the, if if the the hero by the end is just sort of soaring over them, the, the challenge then becomes you you have to keep escalating what the threat is and that can get exhausting (laughs) well and i think that's exactly where you get into jump the shark territory Mm -hmm. because 
the stakes that matter are always those personal ones. And so if it's about like how big the bad guy is or how many planet killing machine things, <laughs> ships there are outside or stuff like that, like it just feels empty unless there's a really strong personal connection to who is on that planet killing, right. you know, ship or whatever else. So, yeah. Um, if, do we have any last thoughts before we switch to the next portion of our podcast? Just Star Wars ones, and I love myself too much to talk about those. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so we're going to switch to our critiquing portion of our podcast. If you would like to check out the text of the submission and see all of our notes, you can look on our website, which is litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you'd like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines and a list of upcoming guests there. A summary of today's submission is in order to learn enough to fly out to her dream job as an opera singer, Cadenza takes a gig singing car jingles with an old family friend. And also there are sports cars and magic. Things we like about this submission. Uh, I, you know, I think it's a really interesting premise and a cool concept that I haven't seen a lot of. And, you know, I must, I'm a sucker for, for music magic, uh, which it seems like that's where this is going. And music magic meets race cars. Definitely like <laughs> that's, that's, that's new. I like that. And I, I felt like as a first chapter, this did a really good job of setting up the major elements that we need to know. We get a sense of the conflict and the major players. And I suspect we've been at least hinted at some of the other major players that will be coming along later on down the line. Well, we get the, the music magic plus race cars as like an awesome like premise, but it's also so well baked into the character, right? Mm -hmm. Like we get that both of these things are extremely important to her. And we're shown that, not, you know, we're shown not told. One thing I really loved was her immediate comparison between herself and her sisters mm -hmm. and her sisters being so much more successful in this career that all three of them apparently have just, I think there are two sisters, mm -hmm. um, that they have chosen and that she's singing car jingles and, and they're like on the stage in the opera and that that's all she wants which i i really liked that i also really liked the voice i feel like there's a lot of like fun ways of describing things through this like it was an interesting read and it wasn't like mechanical like there's a lot of a voice injected into all of the descriptions and dialogue mm -hmm. i'll agree with that one particular example that i really liked is when she's talking with her father's friend about um all of his heirlooms and <laughs> I guess she used to call them story things. And I really loved that turn of phrase. And I think it fits pretty well with some hints that we get near the end of the chapter that maybe she has psychometric powers and can like sense the past when she touches stuff or, mm -hmm. or something. We're not totally clear on the details, but I love what it promises. Mm -hmm. So things that might need a second look. So we talked about this a little bit and now we actually get to dive into it. I think where this will get even stronger is if the author goes through with a critical look at how the character really feels about a lot of the, the circumstances and how that will impact how she narrates the story. So for example, you know, I love the detail that she has, or, you know, the, the, the hint that she has about her sister's or her relationship with her sisters. But I want to see more of that like we get these the details like um you know her sisters are in napoli and i think it's napoli and in venice i don't speak italian um and you know that she's in a tight financial situation we get that uh, she has unspecified conditions to meet from her mother and we get sort of the the emotional part of that towards the end of the chapter where we learn that she's never been to italy and her mother is kind of distant and, and weird and wants her to pay for her plane ticket over there and there's there's a lot of stuff to unpack there but i think 
going back to the discussion of, you know, the emotional stakes on the first page, it'll be more impactful to say, instead of, you know, my sisters are in Napoli, Napoli and, <laughs> and Venice, um, to say, my sisters left me behind and are in Italy. Something maybe hints that she was supposed to go to Italy with them and got left behind. That's devastating. Instead of saying, you know, her credit cards were cut off, say that her mother cut her credit cards off and gave her this ultimatum. Because it's not necessarily a detail that blows the tension for the rest of the the chapter. If you say her mother cut her credit cards off, it's hinting at the emotional stakes that are to come and raising these questions of why would her mother cut her credit cards off? Why why would her family leave her behind? Um, And I think, you know, that sort of helps deepen the emotional stakes i think there were a couple things where i was like you got this this looks like this could be thought through a little bit more um like the big one that stood out to me is that it's about eight hundred dollars for a ticket for two (laughs) one-way ticket from like san francisco to italy and or to to venice specifically if this gig is only eight hundred dollars what is this agent doing (laughs) booking that (laughs) Like, just because an agent works on commission, and that's not going to be an effort worth this agent's time. So I think that, you know, there's there's some questions about the role of this agent and whether or not they're doing their job, because it seems like the family's a little bit more effective at booking her real gigs than the agent. Mm-hmm. And those questions don't have to be answered immediately, but it it has to be addressed somehow in a way like where you kind of wink at the camera and be like, we'll get to that later. I agree, especially with, I mean, like the agent, like, is it the family agent and he's doing a good job for everybody else and not for her? Right. <laughs> or like, I don't, I don't know actually what her emotional stakes are here. I, there have been hints that there are, there's family stuff going on, but I don't know if there's like active antagonism. I don't know if she was left behind or if she just feels inferior because she didn't get jobs like that. Like, did she audition? Um, mm-hmm. Like there's, there's a lot left out, which, I mean, you can leave a lot out at the beginning. You can't give everything at the beginning of a story, but I have been left completely dry as far as knowing where she stands with her family, I guess. Right. And I think there's room to dig into that a little bit more. Like, we mm-hmm. we learn more about the, the uncle figure than we do about mm-hmm. virtually most, like, I'd say, we get a little bit into her late father's background, but that the second most we learn about someone from her past, and the first one is someone who's already going to have a lot of screen time, it seems like. So it would be a more economic or a more effective use of the time to let the later scenes build out Uncle Norway's character than to spend quite as much time on on that. Because we we already know that he's a great guy who's basically giving her a place to stay and paying her money to, to sing songs for him. I also wondered why he was Uncle Norway and not like Uncle Dro. <laughs> I had that question as well. I think it's a cool choice to have her go by her full name of Cadenza, but I want that to feel more intentional, if that makes sense. Like, we've already got someone who names her, who calls her Caddy. Why did she choose to go by Cadenza? Is that going to be a, a character marker if she starts going by Caddy later? And what does it mean about her? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I think my biggest thing here is that I was, because I know this is a contemporary fantasy, I immediately keyed into the the magic and like she feels music coming from things and I think that's really cool and at the very beginning there's some cryptic language about mother's conditions and this job to make ends meet and I immediately jumped to like her mother is a scary witch and is going to eat her or like there's a family curse like I I thought that it was much more interesting than my mom wants me to pay for my own plane ticket and 
it's kind of played for tension through the whole beginning of the first chapter. So my brain went crazy. I was like, <laughs> oh, I really am excited to find out about this. And then when we find out that it's just the plane ticket, I was like, oh, like I, I came up with all sorts of fun stuff. Why isn't it one of those things, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like it's introduced a little bit backward, which is something we've kind of talked about already. Like the things that you choose to keep a secret need to be kept a secret because they'll be exciting when we find out what they are. Um, and otherwise it feels like it's harder to trust an author who like keeps something like that a secret. And then makes right. me wait for it because it wasn't important. <laughs> I, I totally agree. I think the the only reason you would hold that detail back is to not give too much information right up front. But frankly, when whenever I've come into a situation like that, my editor's been like, just move the beginning back like five minutes in the narrative so that, you know, so it's not like at, you don't open right in media res, you know, right as this is happening, you open with something where you have a little bit more room to get that that established so in this case it would be i would suggest like you know when when cadenza gets the email like and then like figures out how am i going to do this because that i just thought literally just thought about this but i feel like that would also solve quite a few problems if the beginning was where cadenza gets the email and then has to talk with the agent where we can then see why the agent is doing such a terrible job for her and then go, you know, move into meeting up with with Uncle Norway and and moving into into the racetrack area. Kristen, Cameron, you've been very quiet. I kind of feel like you covered most of the things I wanted to say in terms of of emotional stakes. I guess one specific place that I thought maybe could use a second look is when Cadenza is reading that note from her mom. She sort of stops and, and mentions that it's actually her sister, Julia, I think, who got her the job. But there's really no, like, emotion that she connects to to that, like, being in debt to her mom slash sister. And I thought that it could have been a little more powerful if we knew what she felt about that. Like, does she resent that Julia had to get her a job? Is she grateful? I, there are lots of ways that we could read that. Mm -hmm. Well, and also the mom's letter when she's like, you can stay with me. It'll be a party. I was like, how does she feel about getting to stay with her mom for this job? Like, is this right. what she's always wanted because she wants recognition? Or is this like a nightmare? Right. Yeah. And like the fact that her mother is like supposed to be cold and distant, but is like, come stay with me. We got you a job. It's going to be great. There's a little bit of distance between these two. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We could get a lot of insight into Cadenza's character if she goes, wow, yeah, that's typical mom haha ha, but i'll get there and she doesn't she won't care she'll just be out partying or if she goes mm -hmm. yeah mom says that she spent her my entire life doing these parties how condensed processes that information or that that disparity will also give us a ton mm -hmm. of insight into her character yeah exactly cameron did you have anything you want to add ditto <laughs> awesome, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> all right well, then I think we need to wrap things up. Thank you so much to this author for submitting your chapter to us. Mm -hmm. um, thank you so much, Margaret, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Our next guest will be Lindahl Clipstone, whose debut gothic romance, Lake's Edge, just hit shelves. If you would like a critique from her, then submit your chapter by October 6th. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It takes a whole team of creatives to produce the show, and it's help from people like you that keep us going. You can find us at patreon.com slash litservicepodcast. There you can get early access to podcast episodes, video versions of the show, and occasional bonus content. Thank you to Craig Harris, who's been doing our sound design. We're sad to lose you and wish you the best in your current endeavors. If any of you listeners have that skill set, sound design, and would like to be involved with the podcast and don't mind being grossly underpaid, 
This is why we need support on Patreon. And would like to be involved with the show, we'd love you to reach out to us via email. Thanks to Chelsea Mortensen for doing all our social media. Please remember to like, subscribe, and comment on the podcast wherever you listen so others can find the show. From Caitlin, Cameron, Aaliyah, and Kristen, thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks. Bye.